Welcome to Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee, a podcast brought to you by the Tennessee Initiative for Perinatal Quality Care. TIPQC exists to improve health outcomes for mothers and infants in Tennessee through our quality collaborative that will identify opportunities to optimize maternal and infant outcomes across our state and is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. The Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee podcast is designed for medical professionals and for patients and families across the state. We will focus on all aspects of the perinatal period with special attention to reducing our maternal mortality rate. This podcast is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Welcome to this week's episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee. I'm your host, Amanda Nally. Today we look at new guidelines recently released by the American Academy of Pediatrics, also known as the AAP, surrounding neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS. Today we have longtime TIPQC member Dr. Stephen Patrick, who worked on these guidelines, and he shares with us how care for the baby with NAS is advancing in 2020. Dr. Anna Murad, our infant medical director, leads this discussion. Join us as we learn more about this important topic. Dr. Patrick, we're very excited to have you here today um, to talk to us about the new AAP guidelines. Dr. Patrick is an associate professor at Vanderbilt and director of the Vanderbilt Center for Child Health Policy. I will start this off by asking how you became interested in neonatal abstinence syndrome. Uh, first off, it's great to be here with you and uh, and with TIPQC, just to be a part of the work that's happened in, in TIPQC for these, these many years. Now, for me, this started... Uh, in the neonatal intensive care unit where I was a fellow and, and we started seeing more infants having opioid withdrawal and that just led to more questions. It was sort of early on during the opioid crisis and it led to questions of, is this happening elsewhere? And one question just led to another uh, where we started looking at uh, what was happening in terms of the US and national incidence of, uh, of neonatal abstinence syndrome to variable care, to systems of care before birth and it's just uh, sort of snowballed. It's been a rewarding experience to hear that because I get to meet folks like you all and uh, get to learn from all kinds of different people from different backgrounds. So it's been um, it's been a really fun journey. Excellent. We are so appreciative of all your work around the subject for sure. So tell us a little bit about the new clinical guideline and can you give us a short overview of how it was developed? Yeah, so the new guidelines uh, from the American Academy of Pediatrics slightly changed the name to neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. And in part, that was to reflect what's happening federally. Many uh, federal agencies from FDA to SAMHSA are using neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome. And so we did that instead of to, instead of talking about neonatal abstinence syndrome or the previous AAP statement that was neonatal drug withdrawal, because we thought it just had greater specificity for what we're talking about. The the statement has been in development for a couple of years, and the goal of the statement from the co-authors and the committees were to take a holistic look at the problem, You know, not just focus in on protocols or medications, but to take a broad look um, at the continuum of care from understanding what happens to moms before they reach our neonatal intensive care units and our, and our nurseries to understanding how we could standardize the processes that we care for infants and thinking more broadly about what happens after discharge too. How do we begin to appropriately hand off uh, to our partners in the community? How can we connect infants to public source resources like early intervention, partner with uh, child welfare? Um, it's a complex process. And so 
for us, this started with a draft uh, from the authors and it went through a pretty extensive review process within the American Academy of Pediatrics where um, councils, committees all weigh in and it's a peer review process where uh, the document grows, it's collaborative uh, in that you know, we respond to, to, the, um, to the, the feedback we're given. Um, they have an opportunity again to uh, provide some feedback. Ultimately, it goes to the board of uh, directors too from the Academy before it is finally published and, uh, and was just published here recently. Can you briefly talk about some highlights um, or some things that you feel like are really changing or would be helpful for our listeners to know about how this is different? For me, one of the transformational changes that we talked through is evidence around not being in the neonatal intensive care unit. You know, we've seen this emerging and we see it in other guidelines like our, our neighbors to the north in Canada have had this in their guidelines for a while. And it is sort of a fundamental shift for many of us who grew up uh, taking care of babies with opioid withdrawal in the ICU. Um, you know, we've seen it at Vanderbilt with, with your leadership, how this can uh, improve outcomes. I think that's a pretty big shift. And, you know, look, when you compare to some of the previous statements too, I think just a broad look at what many of what we're facing in communities um, around things like child welfare, around conversations of screening and testing. Some of these things I think are just, it's, it's an acknowledgement of the struggle that we all face. And sometimes it doesn't have a, a has a clear answer. So for example, we talk about here child welfare, where some of the statements in the past haven't necessarily for this, but we don't have a great solution for this either. It's sort of acknowledging that this is a recent challenge for, uh, for many communities. And it's in part an encouragement for folks to partner with child welfare in their communities and understand what their states require. Well, on the child welfare subject, one of my questions for you is plan of safe care. And that really is one that I had a little later on, but um, now that we're talking about child welfare, do you want to go ahead and talk a little bit about how you envision plan of safe care, what that means, how people are implementing it? Yes. So there's been multiple changes uh, to federal legislation around child welfare when we think about substance exposed infants. The CAPTA legislation, this is the Child Abuse Prevention Treatment Act, was passed initially during the Nixon administration. We've seen multiple changes to it. And more recently, um, in 2016, we saw changes to the plan of safe care where it changed the language to be more more, more broad, uh, to look at substance-affected infants, and multiple changes in the last couple of years where the goal of the plan of safe care, if you look at the federal legislation, is to keep the infant safe and to coordinate, get moms connected to treatment, and to think more holistically about how we can get keep infants and moms together. But it's been a challenge to implement. One of the challenges that states face is that the language in the um, in the legislation is vague, and the funding to implement it at the state level is also uh, pretty sparse. And there, th- this is one of the reasons why we see lots of variation from state to state, and we see providers who are just kind of confused. So one of the the goals is we sort of think about what is the point of this. And the point is really that primary thing: what can we do? collaboratively with our obstetric colleagues and in our community to try to keep mom and moms in treatment and optimize the outcomes for the dyad. The uh, legislation from the Support Act that, that sort of highlights the recent piece of this talks about a collaborative relationship that includes everything from addiction treatment to Medicaid agencies to uh, Title V programs, the state maternal child block grant. 
So it's at this point, it feels aspirational more than it does, uh, you know, concretely implemented. And I think what we're going to see over the next couple of years is probably some iteration on this. I think we may see greater clarity from the Children's Bureau federally about what's required. And we may see some more legislative action because like many states, our state has really struggled with even just some of the definitions and terms. You know, what is a substance affected infant? Uh, that's part of the language there. And it, and it can be really confusing. And it leads many of us, myself included, really confused about what we're supposed to do. And so at this point, it's really about reaching out to your agency, understanding what the requirements are and beginning to craft that. Uh, we collectively are working uh, at, at, at our institution to, to try to implement the spirit of what a plan of safe care would be and, and do that in partnership with families and with DCS. It's very helpful. I think one of the things that you mentioned was the definitions. Um, and when we're talking about definitions, how important it is that we all have the same or similar definitions. Um, so let's start in thinking through can you briefly review the difference between maternal testing and maternal screening and why that's important to understand? Yeah, it's an important question because oftentimes we conflate them. Screening really is about having a standardized tool to screen what's happening. You know, it's not a diagnostic test. So oftentimes we conflate the two. And, you know, look, we know that diagnostic tests like toxicology tests, they catch for, for urine, they catch a small window in time. For meconium or umbilical cords, it's a much longer window. And that may not be a perfect solution. If we are able to engage women prenatally in a, a collaborative uh, relationship, therapeutic relationship with OB, pediatrics, you know, the, ideally you would screen and use something like the four Ps that's been validated to understand what's really going on. Because a snapshot at that point might miss what's actually going on in terms of substance use. In the same realm, when we think about testing for the infant, let's say there's been a mom who, who started getting into treatment sometime in the third trimester. She's stable into treatment, and we then send meconium when the baby's born. Well, the meconium could, could reflect an earlier exposure, and so that gets complicated too. So part of this is just about having a conversation, using a validated screening tool, and then augmenting it with toxicology testing when you need to. This is, you know, one of the things that we talk about is how is this test going to change your management? And we, we say this in the unit, right? You know, I'm not going to order the basic metabolic profile unless it's going to change my, my management. I think the same is true for testing. It, you know, we, we think about this all the time. We've learned this in medicine, right? Nothing is better than a history and a physical exam. And I think that's true for this too. I would totally agree. What about the clinical definitions for NAS and NALS? If you had your perfect definition, is there a perfect definition? And what would you say you think it should be as we move forward? So there are groups working on this because I think one of the things that we really struggle with is even comparing from hospital to hospital, how are we comparing the care that we deliver? People, uh, people diagnose neonatal abstinence syndrome or NOWS differently. Some people will look at just infants who get the diagnosis of drug withdrawal. Some will look at the entire universe of opioid exposure. And in my mind, it's a continuum. You know, we, you, can, you can probably look at, at any opioid-exposed infant, and they're going to have mild clinical signs all the way up to severe clinical signs. I think this is where we need a convener. And, and there are some groups right now working on this to work towards consensus. We aren't going to get something that's perfect. But we can, we've done this for other diagnoses, provide some guidance to where we're at least all speaking the same language. So I think this begins with opioid-exposed infants 
all the way to this continuum of uh, infants that require pharmacotherapy that are more severely affected. The challenge here, of course, is that sometimes even just the site of care, the way you deliver care can change the severity of the presentation. But I, I think this is where collaboratively we, I'm, my hope is that we begin to um, have conversations. We, we know from um, some of our work that, you know, look, you, if you just vary the, the definition, you get very different estimates of, of incidence of the syndrome. You're going to get very different estimates of quality of care between institutions. So I think this is really foundational for how we begin to improve care for our infants. It really does need to begin with a clinical definition. My hope is that the groups that are working on this now federally, that we're going to have something in the next year or so. That would be amazing. Can you talk a little bit about infant scoring and the different scoring tools that are out there and maybe briefly touch on Janssen's work um, that is highlighted in the in the guideline? So the, still the most common scoring system that's used is a modification of the original Finnegan score. And look, the truth is that we know that any scoring system we have, these tools are not validated. They were uh, developed uh, when many of us weren't actually born yet uh, in a very different population. These were heroin-exposed infants. Uh, in the in the early 70s in many cases. So do they reflect our population? What does it mean when you have a 30-day-old that you're scoring with these systems? We know from research that there's a, an amazing amount of iterator reliability issues with, it. You, you name your tool, they all have the same relative issues. And, you know, more recently, we've seen Eat, Sleep, Console as an approach, uh, and it certainly is an approach, but it needs more study too, in my opinion. I think what I see in Eat Sleep Console, it's, it's, you know, there are some really common sense things about it. Can the baby eat? Can we calm them down? Um, you know, can, are they sleeping? Then they're probably okay. But what I've seen and how this has been implemented is that in some institutions, they're, it, they're, they're treating no one with morphine. And some institutions with the traditional scoring systems, where they're treating everyone with morphine. So we, we have this system where we are, we've conflated in many ways the scoring system with the process of care. A lot of the quality reports around Eat Sleep Console, when they implemented Eat Sleep Console, they also implemented rooming in, other non-pharmacologic uh, interventions too. So this is where we need more study. And fortunately, there is a randomized trial that um, NIH is currently starting to roll out uh, to look at Eat Sleep Console. And I think that's going to be really important. And then lastly, you, know, you mentioned Lauren Jansen's work. I think this has some promise too, as we think about evaluating the specific needs of the infant. And, you know, it, it goes into thinking about the different developmental domains of the infant, which can be confusing at, at kind of at face value, but there may be ways to operationalize this, to tailor what the infant is experiencing to the intervention. So, you know, it, it may not be, you know, not every infant may need to be in a dark room, you know, and, and, and those sorts of things. So I think that there's promise there. I do think it is really something to be how many years into this? Like the opioid crisis is not new in our in our modern era, much less you know from the 1970s. And here we're still stuck with tools that and I think that's one of the reasons why we struggle with the definition. The tools are just poor. So this is an area where we definitely need to to move ahead. But I, but I think the ultimate thing is that we do know that if you just pick one and you adhere to it, you improve outcomes. Research suggests both from the Vermont Oxford Network, from the Ohio Perinatal Collaborative. Just having a protocol sticking to it, uh, specifically for scoring, uh, improves outcomes. Institutions that strictly adhere to a treatment protocol and the Ohio Perinatal Collaborative had a length of stay that was about half of institutions that didn't. So that, I think that's pretty substantial. 
Absolutely. I think one of the things we learn in QI work, right? You've got to have consistency. You mentioned morphine a few times. Is there a preferred pharmacologic treatment for these babies who do end up needing pharmacologic treatment? And give us your thoughts about home weaning protocols. You know, there's recent evidence that compared to morphine, methadone and buprenorphine, they're head-to-head clinical trials that, you know, the that use of buprenorphine or methadone results in a shorter length of treatment. What I have a hard time interpreting in this space is everything around it. My general feeling is that it's not the medicine, but the process of care and the environment of care that really influences this more. And and, and so I find it really hard to interpret the differences between these medicines uh, in that context. You know, so I I think that there that there may be the literature suggests there's there's differences and in uh, and, and pretty compelling ways. But I actually think if you implement the systems of care, you end up treating far fewer infants and it becomes less relevant. You know, look, we, we use morphine to treat infants. And I think that there is some benefits of that. If you know, you, Sometimes it may be a little easier to wean, but, but I, I think it really depends on the system of care. Here, I think Part of it is just having a protocol and sticking to it because we've all been in the unit or been in the nursery where it's this infant had a rough night, but they look okay now. And they're like, well, we're not going to wean. You know, that sort of like protocolizing what we do in response to what the infant's doing in response to standardizing scoring, I think is really important. Your question about um, outpatient pharmacotherapy, I think is an important one. In the statement, you know, we talk about avoiding uh, outpatient pharmacotherapy outside of the setting of, uh, of, a, of a program that really focuses on that. The reason is, you know, we've done some research in Tennessee and we found that uh, many infants were discharged home like with medications, a good chunk of infants were discharged home on weans. Disproportionately, that was on phenobarbital uh, at the time. These are data that are now getting kind of old. It was 2009 to 2012. Some of the weans were super prolonged. So the, the median length of treatment for infants who went home on medications was about three times longer than infants who were treated in the hospital. And the tail end was really long. Some infants were on treatment for 200 days. And that's just excessive. And so part of it is that, you know, what I think happens in some cases is that we, we wean and we say, good luck, community pediatrician. And, and I think that's problematic. But there are structured programs. There's been a longstanding program in Vermont where they use methadone, they've done it successfully at home, they wean, it's really close follow-up. You know, I, I, I certainly wouldn't pass judgment on that. There's, there's really no evidence to guide this. But I am concerned about these really prolonged weans that are very different than what we see in terms of adult weans for medications, and in particular, the use of phenobarbital, because there's at least some evidence in other settings, like febrile seizures, that it may have a negative impact on development. What are some of the other discharge planning things that you like to consider for both mom and for baby? You know, we we developed a discharge checklist uh, collectively, again, uh, as a team, uh, you know, us as well as uh, other folks at Vanderbilt. And it was just thinking through the process of what things are important, you know, going through our, uh, you know, creating our smart aim, going through our quality improvement process. So the things that, that we did in that process were trying to think about some of the stuff that we forget about, like hepatitis C, being intentional about making that, uh, that handoff to being to the pediatrician, so making the appointments, uh, making sure we, we make a referral to early intervention services in Tennessee, it's TEIS, uh, and then uh, potentially home nurse visiting, to, uh, visiting as well. You know, look, when we started this, we were doing a pretty poor job of doing that consistently. 
And you know, we've been engaged in this for a while. I think when our initial audits, we were doing those things consistently for kids who needed it uh, about 1% of the time. And so just being intentional of like, these are the things that we need to do is, is important and starting to think about that. You know, we think about, we've thought about discharge, at least for like late preterm infants, a lot more than we've thought about for this population. You bring up another point, which is just about the dyad. How are we coordinating the discharge for the pregnant woman, the infants, and the dyad collectively? Because they, there are so many different needs for the dyad that are not just medical, but also extend to child welfare, EI, addiction treatment. Like, and so hopefully this can be dyadic in, in the way we do it. I would also say that's aspirational. I mean, we'd be kidding ourselves to say that we've got this perfectly figured out, right? I mean, this idea of thinking about the dyad when we do discharge is really hard out of a coordinated program. And, and, and I don't think we're, we're there yet, but it is this sort of mindset of, hey, we should be thinking beyond just the infant, that, um, that we should be thinking about the mom too. That's what plans of safe care do. Because if you treat mom, if mom is stable in recovery, that's going to help her care for her infant. And this is where that partnership is super uh, in- important. You know, one of the things, um, and, and uh, Dr. Murad, you pointed out in, in our, we've done some stakeholder meetings um, in, in one of our projects where we've had moms in recovery and other community partners. And one of the things that we heard co- consistently from moms when we're talking about what do they need, what, what do the infants need? And consistently, it's, it's about moms getting into treatment. The moms need to have treatment access so that they can begin to do the things for their infants. And so focusing on the dyad and thinking about the mom is really important. Yeah, the babies need a healthy mama, for sure. Yeah. So going back a little bit, I know you've done some work around hep C. I think it's an incredibly important topic. I was glad to see that it was included in the guideline. Do you want to talk a little bit about the importance of recognition of hepatitis C and and its impact for both the mom and the baby? Yeah. So we've seen a pretty stark rise in hepatitis C. And and we're we're looking now, actually, nationally again at this and in Tennessee. Even in the study we published a few years ago, in Tennessee, it was about 1% of births in 2014. Some counties, 8% of births were exposed to hepatitis C. What was once thought to be a disease of baby boomers is now bimodal. And we've seen a disproportionate increase in hepatitis C among younger generations, women of reproductive age, and particularly in rural communities as well. So it's important. And what's novel now is that we have a cure for it, not in pregnancy, but we have a cure for moms, certainly after they deliver and maybe in part of that inner uh, conception care uh, model as well. It is uh, really common, undiagnosed, can lead to liver failure, cirrhosis. Um, so it's important. For infants, if you're not looking to see if they've been exposed, you're going to miss it because right now it's not really standardized. And we'll talk, uh, I'll mention kind of what's changed over the last six months or so. But so it's silent and you can't really test for it because you've got maternal antibodies at the time. So there needs to be a plan to make sure that we test infants uh, who are exposed and that we test moms too. What we found in some of our work looking looking at some data from TenCare is that of known exposed infants in Tennessee, we only test about 20% uh, to see if they convert and get the virus. And we found some issues of equity here too. Non-Hispanic black infants, accounting for all other factors, were much less likely to be tested than um, the non-Hispanic white infants. So we need systems of care to really do both, care for moms and babies. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recently published some guidelines about where we should be testing and kind of moving towards universal testing. 
And what they what they said is that if you've got a prevalence of hepatitis C of 0.1% or greater, then you should be universally testing. Uh, we've done some work uh, looking at birth certificates and about 70% of US counties have a maternal prevalence of 0.1% or greater. So we're really at a place where testing universally for moms, in my opinion, makes sense and is cost effective. The question that some folks would say is, what do we do with that information? Well, what you do with it is you provide treatment for mom after she delivers and you follow the infant to see if they convert. Because even though vertical transmission is low, it's 6% overall for infants, it's 11% if there's co-infection with HIV, for some infants that are unrecognized, they will go on to, de to develop liver failure. And even if that's one infant, why wouldn't we want to just test and follow and make sure that we're doing the right thing for those infants? So that is one of the, the areas that we identified in the statement. I think it's a great thing to point out. I would also point out the Red Book recommendation for earlier testing. So the next thing, what, one to two months? And then there's earlier treatment options now. So the age has been moved down to age three. So it is something that's really important that pediatricians know to follow. Okay, so what's next? What's the next big thing? What, what do we need to have happen for our moms who have opioid use disorder? And then what would be the next thing that we need for their infants? Treatment access is a real problem in Tennessee. So we did a, a randomized field experiment. This is sort of like a randomized clinical trial, but instead we randomized secret shoppers that were trained and standardized trying to get into treatment in 10 states, including Tennessee. And these were either women of reproductive age or pregnant women trying to make an initial appointment uh, to buprenorphine providers and to opioid treatment programs or methadone clinics. And what we found is that in Tennessee, harder to get into treatment if you're pregnant than if you're not. But strikingly, it's really hard to get into treatment with any insurance at all. We found only about 20% of, uh, of all comers, not women of reproductive age or pregnant women, were able to get an appointment with their insurance. Whether that was Medicaid or private insurance, there wasn't a big difference. Instead, it was, it was, it was a good chunk of patients that uh, only got an appointment if they paid cash. And the median cost for that first appointment was $250. So we have a state that's disproportionately affected by the opioid crisis where it's still substantially hard for everyone to get into treatment and even harder if you're pregnant. Uh, pregnancy and insurance shouldn't be barriers to getting into treatment, but they are in Tennessee. Uh, and Tennessee was uh, disproportionately worse on, uh, in terms of getting into treatment when we compared to the other 10 states we looked at. Uh, Tennessee and Florida uh, were, were pretty rough states to get into treatment with insurance. So I think that is one area we need to go to because we, we talk about and we've seen it in our state legislature where we have like we had the fetal assault law that was passed. Um, and one of the arguments is that if a woman gets into treatment, she has an affirmative defense. Well, I've gotten into treatment, so I don't, you know, I don't qualify for the fetal assault, being arrested for a fetal assault. But the truth is that women can't get into treatment. And so we need to fix that first, I think, as a state. And again, I'll just emphasize again, this isn't like a Medicaid issue. This isn't this is an everything issue. And then for infants, I, th I think this is part of, you know, how can we start to implement? And some of these things are hard, right? We have resource constraints, um, certainly for treatments. But for when we think about our hospital systems, you, it's impossible for every hospital system, particularly if you're in a small rural community, to implement everything, right? You may not be able to do things outside of an ICU. You may not be able to do. So what I usually suggest is, what well, are there elements of this that you can do that, you know, keep moms engaged, for example, promote breastfeeding as appropriate? Because there, there are certainly constraints around these things. So I think we still have some work to do around implementing that and standardizing the care that we, that we provide. And then to your point, thinking about discharge. I would say that uh, you know, we have this discrete period of time in the hospital 
where we place a lot of emphasis on what we do in our hospital systems. But the truth is the things that are probably transformational happen before birth in terms of getting moms into treatment and after delivery. So, I mean, after discharge. So how can we connect people to the services that help them succeed, that optimize infant development? I think that's where we need to start thinking uh, and moving, uh, not just in Tennessee, but nationally. These are all great points. Can you talk a little bit about clinical changes that you would hope to come from this guideline? We talked a little bit about it earlier, but if you had just one great wish that would come out that everybody would work on, what would it be? I think it's the recognition that not all these infants need to be in a NICU. Like if I was going to pick one thing that I think matters, it's keeping moms and babies together. And I think being in a neonatal intensive care unit is oftentimes a barrier for that. And there's emerging evidence. This evidence is not super stellar, uh, but there's emerging evidence that it improves outcomes. My thought is that it, it may be improving outcomes that we aren't necessarily measuring. I mean, if we are working hard to promote that bond, keep moms and babies together outside the ICU, might it promote the maternal infant bond well beyond discharge? To me, that's a pretty critical piece. And I would say again that you know, if it's not possible in certain centers to to not be uh, to be outside of an ICU, then how can you be more inclusive of of moms? We know that when we do that, we improve breastfeeding rates. We do we do other things like that. That would be the one change that I would hope to see uh, if there was any change. Do you want to talk a little bit about risk assessment for the infant? Sure. Uh, we've been working to to try and help tailor some of the assessment of infants' risk to 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 have drug withdrawal. Uh, right now, we sort of look at all opioid-exposed infants as you know one size fits all, and the only guidance, including and the guidance that we just published, is based upon the half-life of the opioid. But we know it's a lot more complicated from that, and the literature and from some of our work. Um, so we've just published a clinical risk prediction tool that looks at factors that are obtainable at the time of birth to estimate an infant's risk. We did this based upon 10 care data. So we use 10 care data linked to vital records to look at various exposures. And we find things like, for sure, the type of opioid is important, but so is, uh, so is the infant's sex, the infant's gestational age and birth weight. Other exposures like benzodiazepines and gabapentin are also important. Uh, I, I think this is a first step uh, because this tool needs to be validated before we use it clinically. But if folks are interested, they can go to our website it's uh, www.childpolicy.org uh, slash capital NAS, uh, lowercase risk. Uh, so it's NAS risk to play around with the tool. But we need to, we need to validate this before we start to, to use it. But my hope is that we can stop observing kids uh, for long periods of time after birth if they're super low risk and that we, you know, we, we instead discharge them earlier with the right amount of supports. One of the things you'll notice too is we don't include this, these are from legal exposures. We don't include heroin. You know, I don't I don't know that we need to discharge early a mom who's actively using heroin or has untreated opioid use disorder. This is just a tool to sort of help guide things. Right. I think it's a very good point to remember that mom is a patient also. So we need to be looking out for her welfare as well. Yes. What have I not asked? What else do we need to talk about? <laughs> oh, there's so many issues, right? Right. Always more to talk about. There is. Um, I, I think COVID nineteen has 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 made everything harder. I honestly think it's made everything harder for teams. It's made uh, everything a bit more stressful for working with people collaboratively. 
And, you know, I, I think this is a time where first off, being mindful that everyone is having some sort of stress, um, anxiety levels for all of us are higher. People are playing these dual roles of clinician, teacher at home. And I think part of this is that we need to be leading with kindness to ourselves and to other people and uh, give each other and other folks some grace. I also think that this has been harder for many of our families too. We, we know from some early reports that there's been an increase in overdose deaths uh, related to opioids and just overall, and this year is probably gonna set another record for overdose deaths. And how that plays out for pregnant women and infants, we don't know yet. I think anecdotally, uh, from our our team, I, I'm curious what you think, uh, Dr. Murad, but that we might be seeing a shift towards some infants who aren't in treatment, moms aren't in treatment compared to what we've seen in the past. But I think there are going to be implications for this moving forward, thinking about COVID-19. But you know, these are this is a tough 2020 has been a tough year in many ways, and I think part of it is that uh, this sort of recognition and not to be too touchy feely, but that we're kind of all in this together and to pause to lead with kindness and remember that the person you're talking to, whether that's your patient or colleague, is is probably also having a hard time. Very good point. Thank you, Stephen. I think this has been a great, Dr. Patrick, this has been a great. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, we learned a lot and can't tell you how much we appreciate your work on this. The guideline is, is really very helpful. I hope that everybody has a chance to read it. Um, and then we will um, try to get out the website for Center for Child Health Policy. I think it's a very useful tool for our teams to, to know about. Thank you so much. It's great to be here today. And I would say this, like your partnership and the key collaborative collaborations uh, locally for me has been incredibly meaningful. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about is due to the work of folks like you. Uh, and so uh, I just appreciate you, Dr. Murad, as well as Tip QC. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee presented by Tip QC. Tip QC is funded under a grant contract with the state of Tennessee. Healthy Mom, Healthy Baby Tennessee is brought to you through a cooperative agreement with the Alliance for Innovation on Maternal Health. Do you have ideas for a future guest or topic or even have a question you would like answered on upcoming episodes? Visit www.tipqc.org, that's T-I-P-Q-C.org, and click on podcast to submit suggestions and questions to our podcast team. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast to be the first to know when new episodes are available and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to stay in the loop with our active projects and other relevant news relating to perinatal health in Tennessee.